So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Welcome back, y'all. All right. So I'm excited about today's topic because today we are talking about cough. I wish I could have like coughed right then and there. <laughs> now, I'm not going to lie. A year and change into the pandemic, when I hear what someone start coughing in line at Target, well, you know, we all kind of start freaking out a little. It's like an awkward elephant in the room and we're trying not to stare and we're all internally having a significant amount of anxiety because they're coughing and they can't stop. But you, you can't see that my hand is raised in admission, but that's me. I'm the person when I see somebody coughing, I get anxious. Well, fun fact, some folks are just chronic coughers. It's an actual factual thing. And wait for it, some of our pediatric patients are also chronic coughers. And y'all, it has nothing to do with PO intake. It's just that they cough. All right, mind-blowing fact, right? I mean, we all have those patients on our caseloads that they cough when they eat, and we just know that they're aspirating, and we send them out for an instrumental, and nope, no aspiration, no penetration, everything was functionally fine. But then they came, come back to us, and they start coughing again. And it's so worrisome, and it's so frustrating, and it's like we're chasing this white rabbit, and it's, it's a perpetual cycle, right? Well, y'all, that chase and that worry stops today, because can I get a drum roll, please? I'm going to make a drum roll, y'all. Okay, we have the lovely and uh, I'm gonna butcher it, Andrea Story. I think I got it right. M C L S C C C C S L P with Greenville ENT here, and she's gonna set us all straight with the facts about pediatric chronic cough. And forgive me for butchering her name a million times. So, Andrea, thank you for coming on. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to get to talk about cough. Um, pediatric cough is one of my passions. It probably is weird for a speech pathologist to love cough. At least that's what my colleagues tell me. But I love being the cough lady. Um, I treat cough in adults and children, and I love to treat cough. I got to be honest, I had never heard of an SLP treating cough until um, Annalisa um, Annalisa. Okay. So y'all, here's our connection. Annalisa is our social media guru champion for first bite. And she did her practicum site out with Greenville. I think it was with, um, 
oh bless it's your Elisa. voice Eli- Elisa. Yes. Mm-hmm. Elisa and she goes Michelle there's a woman there and she's the cough lady and I was like what <laughs> that's a thing and she was like it's the coolest thing ever and so that's how we met that's our backstory but absolutely how in the world now you're from Canada so you come from Canada and now you're the cough lady and you're the cough lady in South Carolina so how did all of that transpire yeah, crazy story. So I did all of my training at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, Canada. So I went to grad to undergrad and graduate school in speech pathology at Western, and then actually got my first job right at the university. So my first job was actually in neurology. So got to work with some fabulous people. That's kind of one of the big neurological centers in Canada um, and did four or five, I guess, five years there. Um, and then my husband job, husband's job transferred us down to North Carolina, and I got to work at UNC in Chapel Hill. And that's where I became captivated with voice and all things laryngeal um, and worked with fabulous colleagues there and just really got to cut my teeth in voice and um, laryngeal cancer and, and really kind of started to learn about upper airway, breath disorders, uh, and a little bit of cough. Cough was kind of still in its infancy uh, you know, we've really only been treating cough in the speech pathology field for about 15 years. Um, it's just, you know, branching out slowly. It's still really just in specialty clinics. Uh, and there are only, you know, if you make a referral to a general speech pathologist for cough, she's not going to have a clue what to do. And bless her heart, how would she? Um, you you have to kind of find those specialists. And, and even in, in specialty clinics, there aren't there isn't a cough specialist in every voice clinic, but we're starting to get there. There are more continuing education classes and, you know, we're basically slowly uh, reaching our tentacles out. And, um, and I think, you know, we're, we, we don't need, for example, we don't have a special interest group in upper airway yet. That's a, that would be one example. We have a voice special interest group, but ASHA does not have a special interest group in upper airway yet, but I think it's coming, um, you know, that we're, that will probably be the next step. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Because yeah. we've we've got one for dysphagia, but SIG-13 for, it felt like forever, it was all adults and scant to little on peds, which exactly. I, I know you and I have had sidebar conversations about that, but like, yeah. it's very frustrating because of the, the body of evidence for peds is still growing and because I, I think the um, lack of hard line, this is what we need to do, this is what we shouldn't be doing, is where we have so many people practicing in the gray with all things plastic. But you yeah, know, that's, right. that's and, just and we, my we, humble opinion. And we drowned, right? We, people who need guidance, who don't have great mentors or, or access to to here is exactly what you should be doing, either through a mentor or through, through you know, just ha- access to that perfect course at the perfect time. They drowned in this this volume of information that is not tailored to what they need, um, and that's what makes me sad. You know, I know if if this poor general speech pathologist gets a referral for cough, she she's going to do her best. She's going to look at the she's going to do a literature search and she's going to try to find everything she can. And oh my goodness, how would you know where to start? It's impossible. It's just impossible unless you have guidance. So, and if you can't go to a special interest group or you can't go to an article, I mean, if you tried to search, and for example, I did do a search on on habit cough, which is what this pediatric uh, behavioral cough is called in the literature, 
and and I laughed. I mean, I, I belly laughed when I saw what was out there because it, it's basically literature put out by pulmonologists who are quite certain they know the way to treat this, and um, they don't. <laughs> they do not. There was nothing by speech pathologists. It said you should refer to speech pathology, but they didn't. Say, there was nothing about what a speech pathologist would do or should do. You would have to That's dive very deep. Yeah. That's horrifying. Yeah. 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 It was, it was, it huh. was, it was horrifying. I was surprised that I wasn't able to get something more specific from the speech pathology world, but even knowing the words to put in, and I put all the words I knew to put in, it did not, I was not able to find it. So interesting. All right. Now you call it, you, you call it habit cough. Correct. That's kind of what, um, that's what the literature calls it. That's what um, a lot of pediatricians, pediatricians call it that, pulmonologists call it that. I hate that term uh, because I feel it puts the onus and the blame on the kid. You know, it's your, it's your fault. You, it's your habit. You need to stop this habit and then it will go away. So I avoid that term, but let me give you a few other terms. Uh, I have a whole list. It's called habit cough. It's called tick cough, which I also detest because I think in all of the children that I have treated, I've maybe seen a true tick cough, like a Tourette's kind of true tick cough, maybe in about 1%. And those children have other ticks going on. But pediatricians love that term. And I don't know where that comes from. It, it doesn't look at all like a Tourette's kind of tick unless it does, right? You can immediately see it. it it's, they've got other blinking eyes, almost like um, in fluency disorder where you will see the, the secondary behaviors with blinking or um, you know, head turns or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exactly. That, those coughs are very, very, um, you know, you can see it as soon as they walk in the door. This kind of cough, the habit cough, which is again, the diagnosis that the, the pulmonologist will give it, um, is not at all like that. But, but you sometimes do get a referral with tick cough as the diagnosis. Um, other diagnosis uh, of this uh, same in the same vein, functional cough, um, behavioral cough, psychogenic cough, sensory cough, operant cough, involuntary cough syndrome. So those are all describing the same thing. Um, the one that I probably use the most often is either behavioral cough um, because it's a behavior. Um, so we can talk about it that way. Um, I have been using more often lately the involuntary cough syndrome because it sort of, to me, goes under that same umbrella as irritable larynx syndrome. Um, and then we now are talking about... Um, ILO in the breath disorders uh, world, which is um, inducible laryngeal obstruction. So to me, it kind of all fits in there where you are sort of something is happening in your throat that you don't have a ton of control over. And so we're going to give you control over it. So those are some of the, um, that's kind of why I like that one. It does, it places less um, blame on the kid. And then we can help them say, well, now we're going to give you some, we're going to give you control over it. Right now you don't have control over it. Our goal is that you have full control over it. Okay. So I, I have so many questions. I am so excited about this. I don't even know where to begin. Okay. So a couple of thoughts. One, my kid's sister, my kid, we call her squat. 
my dad squat. Well, my dad called her squab. It was a baby dove and like back home. And I, when I was little, couldn't say squab. So it came out squat. So I love it. But she has ever since we were little, always had this great, this, this characteristic, this habit of throat clear with like a little cough afterwards. And as I do it, but my, sorry, I have post-nasal drip today. I promise it's not COVID again. Um, but my nephew has inherited, and I don't know if this is the right, if I'm using the right term, so correct me where I'm wrong, but he's got the same kind of intermittent throat clear followed by a cough pattern periodically in his speech. And when he was younger, he had to go to a doctor for this nasty cough and it was this nasty cough that he had right when he was going through the change of life for little boys yeah <laughs> so interestingly like, it's, it's actually sometimes called puberty cough too i didn't even what? lay that one out there but yes that is what it is sometimes called because it seems to hit it hits between the ages of 8 and 14 15 with kind of the mean at 10 but certainly there's that range and, and puberty cough is, is it, I, I've, that's another one in the literature. So there you go. That was right when he was doing it. Cause he's like 15 now and tall. Oh my Lord. My baby nephew is almost six feet. So, so interesting. Yep. That, and I think that has something to do with some, if you have a, a, a sensitive larynx anyway, when you have a big change in the larynx that can trigger, um, you know, that, that hyper reactivity, and then the way he responds to that is by coughing because it feels weird to him. And so also interesting, there is a hereditary component to that, to this, this type of cough. So it seems to happen. It can happen in brothers and sisters or parents can say, yeah, I think I had that when I was a kid as well. Uh, and there is a variant that is a throat clear. So uh, it, it, it can be a softer throat clear variant but typically it's quite barking it's quite loud and barking like <gasps> a dog or like a seal it's very i mean i can hear them in the waiting room i will go oh there's my patient is here i don't even need to look at the computer <laughs> i'm like oh there's my patient yeah very very characteristic loud barking <gasps> repetitive sound yes yes that's oh my gosh i cannot wait to tell squat <laughs> <laughs> like she will, she will appreciate this. And she's going to be mortified that I talked about her. So like, huzzah, there's that too. Okay. So what does this, when, when does this start? What does it look like? And how do we like go through the diagnostic process? And now I'm going to be like hyper attentive to my own children because yeah. do we yes. have a genetic variant? What's going on with Sir Bear? <laughs> so um, uh, let's talk about the clinical characteristics. So it is, as I said, loud and repetitive, but there is a softer throat clearing variant sometimes. And so we never say it has to be that loud barking seal-like. Tends to be dry, not a productive cough. Uh, here is the hallmark characteristic. It is absent once the child is asleep. However, that it can very much interfere with getting to sleep. So there can be some very difficult nights when this is at its peak. So if we're going through a very rough time with this, a flare up, for example, these children can keep the entire household up with uh, just uh, you know, horrible episodes until very late at night, until they can they finally are exhausted, fall asleep, and then everybody else can get to sleep because it does not occur during sleep. Um, it affects both sexes equally. 
Um, so there is no, uh, unlike paradoxical vocal fold motion, which is strongly female dominant, this is equal in boys and girls. Um, it has no response to any medication. And so typically children are tried on every medication because physicians prescribe medication. So they are given bronchodilators in high amounts. They are given steroids in high amounts. They are given- That can because cause big damage. Big damage and big side effects. And so you look, think about steroid after steroid after steroid prescription because that barking cough tends to make a physician prescribe a steroid. They think inflammation in the lungs, they sound awful. So they're prescribing steroids. Sometimes, I mean, multiple rounds of antibiotics and then antitussive medications. And sometimes that involves codeine, um, you know, anything to kind of get that cough stopped. Sometimes the codeine will, will put a little break in it enough to get them to sleep, you know, just sort of a break in that cough. And, and I'm actually in favor of that in the short term. If you can just take a dose at bedtime just to get to sleep until we can get this under control, I'm, I am in favor of that for a very short time. Um, typically, these kids have had multiple specialist visits. So they've been to the ER because the parents are at their wits end. They don't know what to do. Multiple ER visits. They've typically seen their pediatrician multiple times. They've been to a pulmonologist. They've been to a GI doctor because there's a question of reflux with cough. They've been to a allergist because, oh, it must be allergies. That's why you're coughing. And they've been to an ENT doctor. It must be something in your throat. Maybe it's maybe you're, there's an airway issue. So they've been to all of these physicians and all of these physicians have prescribed medications. Very few of these physicians diagnose the, the habit cough. Again, it's it's not well picked up. It's it's not a common diagnosis. So this is not a common diagnosis. It's it's uh, incidence is low. Um, I would say that uh, I could not find a reliable incidence number in any of the literature. They do feel that it's missed frequently. It's misdiagnosed as an asthma related cough, and they just give them the bronchodilators. Um, I would say that I see approximately 15 patients a year with this. Um, and I think that our pediatric pulmonologists are really good at diagnosing it. And I think probably eventually they would get to our pediatric pulmonologists, which is a large group. We have a pretty large group in Greenville. Um, the other interesting thing is they miss, they are all homeschooled. They are, and of course, everyone right now is 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 homebound. They're you know have that option. But prior to COVID, a good number of these children were on homebound uh, instruction because they were so disruptive in the classroom because they are coughing every few seconds. They their teachers want to murder them. You know, their <laughs> the cough is so disruptive. Their parents want to murder them. I mean, it's so awful. Because my sister, my sister went through that with my nephew. She was like, "Oh my God, what is wrong with his lungs?" And it was, and it it kept him out of soccer. I mean, like he lost like two seasons of soccer because of like they couldn't get it under control. And it's just brutal. I mean, because it's when you listen to it, it sounds like they're really sick. I mean, because it's such a violent cough. So. It's, you know, it's very frustrating, but I, you can understand a teacher could not have a child like that in the classroom. And you're exactly right. In your intro, you said, you know, you can't cough like that right now because you are typhoid Mary. They're going to throw a fire suppression blanket over you if you're in a grocery store and drag you out. Right. So the, and, and as a child, you know, that you are very aware of the stigma 
of that. And, you know, the sidelong glances you're getting, you know, kids, are, kids of 10 years old are very aware of what, you know, how they're perceived and kids are afraid of COVID and they're afraid of what their peers are thinking of them. So the stigma is real. Yes. Yes. That happened. Like a kid came, started coughing in kindergarten, like after we had gotten COVID from kindergarten and bear came home and he was really emotional and it took a couple of days for him to, and he goes, I don't want my friend to die from the pandemic. And so, yes, but they are. Yes. It's mm-hmm. awful. So, uh, so that, you know, and even before that, the kids feel the, like the frustration of their peers. Why don't you shut up? You're interfering with the classical. I can't hear when you're sitting next to me. So it is very uh, emotionally upsetting for them. Um, so they end up on homebound instruction, which you can only imagine. This is a child who was previously well, and all of a sudden is on homebound instruction. And the parents like, what has happened to my child? Um, and, uh, so the onset of this, which we haven't spoken about yet is almost always an upper respiratory infection of some sort. So that is the trigger. So they're triggered with a cold bronchitis, something, and then they are, they, all of the other symptoms resolve and the cough persists. So that is uh, 95% of the time. That is how this begins. And then it goes on. And interestingly, sometimes the, pa- the patient will come and say, you know, I, last year this happened and the cough lasted about a week, a week and a half past normal, and then it resolved on its own. But this year, it's been going on for two months and it hasn't gotten better. Or maybe it's gone on for eight months and it just hasn't gotten better. So I hear all sorts of varying degrees of length of time that the cough has been going on, but it tends to get worse and worse over time. Or there'll be flare-ups where the, she'll say it's, the parent will say, or the child will say, seemed to be getting a little bit better, but then all of a sudden it got worse again. So there's, it sort of waxes and wanes. And certainly things like allergies, uh, uh, climate, that kind of thing can make it worse. So there can be things that ramp the cough up, irritants like um, season. So if they all of a sudden have had the cough and it's just sort of lingering along and then an allergy season will come and cause more um, histamine reaction, well, then that will make it worse. Or if they have some exercise issues and they're already got this reactive airway and then they start to try to play a sport like your nephew playing soccer, they just, that makes it worse and they aren't able to do that. So there are, there can be some flare ups that occur because of, you know, particular triggers. Another interesting thing is very rarely have I ever seen, and, and literature supports this, any secondary gain with this. So, you know, it's interestingly that it's called um, psychogenic cough, because when we hear the word psychogenic, we often think secondary gain, right? They're doing, they're faking it because they don't want to go to school. I have almost never seen that. This seems to be completely related to hyperreactive throat, related to the virus, and they are—they want to go to school. They want to play the sport. They want—they are frustrated with their body. They would do anything to be better. They are often tearful. They want to get better. This is not at all related to a kid that doesn't want to go to school. In fact. Much of the time, these are very uh, high achieving kids. Like they, they're like, I, I get all A's. I'm at the top of my sport. I, you know, I, I, this is frustrating me that I'm not able to do my best. So is the psychogenic, is that, is that, is that an anxiety presentation or is it, 
Because that's what I think when you say type, I come across type A, not that I am type A and have anxiety, but like that's where I go in my head. Right. And type A is certainly true for, um, which I consider a sister disorder to this, VCD, vocal cord dysfunction or paradoxical vocal fold motion, 100% type A, always. And, and again, that's, there's no secondary gain there either, but anxiety is a piece of that. I see some anxiety in this. Um, I don't think it's as high on the list as VCD, PVFM. You know, there, that, there's a, there is definitely a more um, causative factor in PVFM. But what I see in this is, and I wonder what comes first, the chicken or the egg, I think having a cough like this in a lot of these kids who tend to be, I don't know if they tend to be more type A. I don't think that that's a predictive factor, but I think it does create anxiety in them because they're frustrated at how limited they are by the cough. And then when they become anxious because of the limiting factors, that creates tightness in their shoulders, tightness in their neck, makes breathing a little more rapid, all of which makes this cough worse. So the way that they react, the way that any of us would react to the circumstances of the cough makes the cough worse. So it becomes a bit of that vicious cycle. Um, And then our treatment becomes controlling the breath, relaxing the throat, doing breathing techniques and, and overall throat relaxation and shoulder relaxation, diaphragm, manual therapy types of things that are going to relax all of that and help them gain control somewhat of the anxiety, although we don't treat that directly. Sometimes we will refer for counseling if we think that's a factor. As you said that, I literally pushed my shoulders down and opened up my chest. <laughs> and was like, ah, practice what you preach, woman. That's Absolutely. What 100%. We all have to do that. Yes. Yes. Okay. So now when they come to you, do they come with the diagnosis or are you giving the diagnosis like the ICD-10? Right. Good question. Um, So I would say that most of the time they're coming with the suspicion of the diagnosis. And I have, I'm so lucky in that I have developed or built a, a great relationship with the, my referring physicians over the years. And so my main referring physicians for this are a group of allergists in the upstate and then a group of pediatric uh, pulmonologists. So, and then a few of our pediatric ENTs as well. Um, and, and those are the ones that, that I get referrals from. I would love to get more referrals from everyone. I do have actually a couple of pediatricians as well who are pretty on it. Um, and so I have, I think we have taught each other over the years, so they know what to look for. So they are typically suspicious of this, and then they want me to confirm the diagnosis. So they don't usually make the diagnosis. They say, we are suspicious of habit cough, and then they send the patient to me for confirmation. And they, of course, mostly are getting it right. Um, sometimes they don't, there's been a few times where I've just thought, you know, this, nope, we've got to go back to the drawing board. I think there's something else going on. And I think sometimes they're, they send a hail Mary, like they're like, I don't know what this is. Can you help? And I'm like, no, yeah, you're on the wrong track. Let's, you got to go back to the drawing board. But most of the time they're, you know, they're on the right track and we can, we work together to sort of piece it all out. So yeah, that's kind of a, yeah. So I confirm the diagnosis that they are suspicious of. Does that make sense? Yes, 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 yes. So this this is where um, we we had one of the things that I see um, 
clinicians struggle with, <clears throat> and this is, I promise this is related, is actual knowing how to code, like knowing what ICD-10 code to use, how to use it, when to use it, and then what's the appropriate CPT code. So I had my had our students go through an activity and oh the ones who got it man they were like on it and the ones who did it they were like where can i go for additional resources and you know asha has on their website they have the asha super bill which shows mm-hmm. you love the super all, bill yes it tells you i all use it the, all the time yes thank you yes they tell you the cpt codes like how to code for the services that you're rendering but yes. those that CPT code is driven by the etiology that you're treating, right? right. Correct. So when you're when you're coding, you have to know the ICD code for the disorder that you're treating. Right. Now, just as she said, you can't treat the anxiety if there is an actual factual anxiety. You're treating the voice or the cough. So you Correct. have to have <clears throat> and you code backwards. Correct. So you code what you're treating and then um, I'm, I'm thinking of a little boy that I work with that has autism, Down syndrome, but I'm not treating Down syndrome and autism. I'm treating the oropharyngeal dysphagia and mm-hmm. the neurogenic language disorder. So I am coding R1312 for oropharyngeal dysphagia, R41.841 for cognitive communication deficit. And then I put in the ICD-10 code for Down syndrome, autism. So when you're, if you are in this world and you're treating voice and you're treating um, mm-hmm. chronic cough, make sure that you're coding these correctly. Right. So yes. I treat, I code R05, which is cough, and I tr- code R49.0, which is dysphonia, because most of the kids who cough like this have a hoarse voice. Because when you cough a lot, like a barking seal, your voice gets hoarse. And interestingly enough, I often have to do just a very few little voice resonant exercises because your voice, when it sits back in your throat because you've been coughing so much, that can be then a trigger for the cough. And it's just a few resonant voice exercises, but just, again, bringing their awareness to that, they're like, oh, right, I do realize I'm doing that. And bam, they stop doing it. And that's one more piece that stops the cough because it's a whole... It's a whole little mixture of four or five things that are causing them to cough constantly. And when we remove those things, the cough goes away. And that's how I explain it to them. So, um, so yeah, I am treating voice. I'm absolutely treating voice. And I'm treating a breath disorder, which I hope eventually Asha is going to add to the, I mean, I'm hoping we're going to have that. That's one of our struggles is we don't have quite enough codes. Like for example, we don't have habit cough. We just have cough. Um, uh, it would be nice if we had a few more codes. It would, we have vocal cord dysfunction, um, but we don't, it'd be nice if we had a few more. Again, we're behind. We need a special interest group on upper airway disorders so that we can start to lobby for a few more of those diagnostic codes and CPT codes. So y'all, the American Medical Association owns the CPT codes and the um, there's a board, and I can't rem- forgive me, I'm remiss. I don't remember the name of the board, but it's the ICD is International Classification of Dysfunction or Disorders, and that's an, you have to make a pitch for why we need those codes added. So it requires a significant amount of advocacy and education. And Feeding Matters just did it; they pulled off an art code for PFD. 
for pediatric breathing disorders. But it, I mean, that took years, years, but we're getting that. Um, and they roll out with the new codes October 1st of every year. But um, man, this would be. And when you look at the ICD-9 codes and there's ridiculous, I mean, there's some ridiculous ones. You're like, why is that there? And some of the things that make a whole lot more sense are not there. So it's, yeah. Lobbying, baby. We (laughs) we won't go there. (laughs) (laughs) Lobbying. Okay. Okay. So, huh, that was a big squirrel, but that was, that's what we need that information. We do. We so do. Yeah, we do. Okay. So treatment. What does- what does a treatment session look like as I physically rearrange my body in my yes. chair to make yeah. me not? And so just before I get open. into treatment, I want to just mention one more thing. And that is that when they come to me, it's not just the cough. They also complain of, and this is what can sort of send everybody down some other rabbit holes. They're nauseous. They have headaches. They have chest pain. They have breathing difficulty. They have rib aches. They have, I mean, they're, they're, Sometimes they're holding their sternum, they're holding their rib cage because they've coughed so hard. And these are tiny little bodies, right? A lot of these, these 10, eight and 10 year olds, I had a five-year-old and they cough so hard, they rack their little bodies to the point of almost vomiting. And it is, they're exhausted. So the fatigue is real. And um, so we're having to really give credence and give, um, and listen to those symptoms because often physicians are not hearing them and they're not hearing their parents. And sometimes they just need to be heard. So I spend a lot of time in that first session on just hearing them and telling them it's normal. This is normal. We're going to fix it. What you're telling me, I have heard before. You are not crazy. Um, and I think we all know as speech pathologists, that is so powerful. I mean, I just can't express how very powerful hearing the patient is, hearing the mom, hearing the dad, hearing the child, because they have not been heard. They have felt unheard. They have walked out of multiple specialist offices with a prescription in their hand thinking, I just paid another copay and bought another medication that is not going to help because I know they didn't hear me. So I feel like that's probably the most important thing that I do is I say, I hear you. I have seen other patients like you. This is what is going on. And we have a pathway to fix this. And that um, acknowledgement of the symptoms and the situation, and then a lot of education about what's going on goes miles, miles and miles and miles. Um, I, I think that almost every parent cries in the first session because they're so relieved to have somebody hear them. Um, So a lot of my first treatment is education. Um, I spend uh, time showing them what the vocal cords look like. I talk about how the vocal cords job is airway protection and what has happened to their child. and, And I tell the child, of course, that the vocal cords are overprotecting the airway. And this, of course, can happen in conjunction with asthma or not. But often, if it is happening in conjunction with asthma, the vocal cords really are overprotecting asthmatic lungs. And so it sort of makes sense that they've become irritated. Or in the case of an upper respiratory infection, there was mucus, there was infection, there was all of this going on, and the vocal cords just decided, hey, 
we're going to overdo our job. We're going to protect the lungs. We're going to get that mucus out of there. We're going to cough, 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 cough. And then we just forgot to relax. So anytime anything happened, the threshold for cough became so low that instead of just coughing when we felt mucus or when we felt, you know, a need with inflammation of the airway to cough, we decided to cough when a piece of cotton ball was floating down the hallway a mile away. We got overreactive and the nerves became hypersensitive. And so now we have to reset those nerves and we can do this. This is very possible, but that is what has been going on. And the more you cough, the more sensitive those nerves get. So we've got to put a break in the coughing. So that makes sense to them, right? They can see that. They see the vocal cords. They understand. Um, and another thing I'll do with them is I'll say, I want you to bang your hands together as hard as you can. Clap, 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 clap. And we'll clap our hands for 30 seconds. And then I'll say, how do your hands feel? Are they stinging? Are they red and irritated? And they'll say, yeah. And I say, well, that's what's happening to your vocal cords. Only we don't have pain receptors in our vocal cords. So look at your hands. They're red and puffy. So no wonder your vocal cords feel thick and feel irritated. You're banging those vocal cords together every time you cough. So if we don't stop banging them together, they're not going to ever heal. They're never going to get back to a normal function. They're never going to not be irritated. So that helps them too. Those images um, really help them understand. So we have to put that break in the cycle and that makes sense to them. Um, and before I go on to the next piece of treatment, I wanted to just mention what um, the what the pediatric pulmonologists say, just for fun. They say <laughs> that all that is required. Wait till you hear this. All that's required is suggestion therapy. So here is what here's what they tell you to do: repeat expressions of confidence that the patient is able to resist the urge to cough. You can hold back your cough. It's easy, isn't it? Not affirmatively. It generally results in a similar affirmation movement by the patient. What? So you're just supposed to <laughs> nod at the patient. Stop coughing, nod. Stop coughing, nod. I'm like, okay, for one thing, the word cough suppression just makes my skin crawl. Because as soon as you tell someone to stop doing something, doesn't that just make you want to do it? That's Stop literally coughing. the giant red button that you want to push as soon I as mean, somebody says, don't touch that. Don't cough. Don't cough. Don't cough. You, you don't have to cough, do you? Don't cough. Don't cough. Don't cough. Okay. So I'm just pretty sure that doesn't work. Um, all right. That They did tell that to my nephew though. Okay. They, did did the, it work? The, no. The pediatrician said, he goes, son, it's all in your head. Get it together. Because it's like an old country doctor in my hometown. And I mean, it didn't, he like basically outgrew it. I think, I mean, I don't know how to explain I call that. BS on that one. I'm going to yeah. like go, what? Okay. So what do I do instead? So I, um, the next thing we do after that education piece, and I actually try to do, I have a really long session. The first session, I try to do all of this because they're so desperate. I do a lot in the first session. Um, so the next piece we do is um, we talk about vocal hygiene. So uh, we talk about increasing water. Um, we talk about um, saline nebulization. So I try to get every, a lot of the times these kids already have a nebulizer at home, but they've been nebulizing albuterol, which has all those side effects. We stop the albuterol uh, unless they need it for asthma. 
Um, but if they aren't having asthma symptoms, we just do saline nebulization twice a day. That really seems to hydrate the vocal cords and start to promote healing. So we love the saline nebulization. We also recommend pectin throat drops. So we get rid of all uh, mentholated throat drops. And we're going to use pectin throat drops, which are Hall's Breezers or Luden's uh, throat drops. And we'll use those. What about, sorry, what about Re- Ricola? Yeah, like Ricola, Ricola is like okay those. too. Mm-hmm, those are okay. Those are the three that don't have, um, um, they don't have any menthol in them. Uh, Ricola does not have pectin, so they're not quite as soothing, but if you like them, they work. Um, and what we're looking for that to do is just, again, provide that little bit, anything we can do to kind of soothe that irritation in the throat. That's our goal with that. Um, and then we teach laryngeal massage. So this is a very gentle manual technique that is going to relax the muscles of the throat. And if the child is comfortable, I teach them to do self-massage. That's my goal. So it depends on the age and the comfort level of, of the child kind of, you know, able being able to do that. It's, it's a very gentle downward stroke. Um, we use, uh, we're working on the sternocleidomastoid muscles. So those big tendons right underneath the ears. Um, and we use a little lotion and we're just getting them to find, we get them to learn the muscles of their neck where they feel tension. And we kind of just get them to work on just kind of finding the areas of tension. It usually hurts. They usually have some pain there because they've been recruiting those muscles to push and cough so hard. So we just teach them some, a little bit of manual therapy and we get them to do that twice a day. And if they are uncomfortable with that and they'd rather have their parent do it, we teach the parent to do it. Um, we also teach them some gentle stretches, um, just like uh, ear to shoulder, uh, ear to the other shoulder. And then uh, we teach them uh, some breath control. So why do we teach the breath control? Because what we're doing is we want to give them an alternate technique to do other than the cough. So instead of saying don't cough, we say breathe like this. Um, Because we'll say as soon as you feel a tickle in your throat, I want you to do this breath. I want you to breathe this way. So the first thing we try, we teach is actually na- gentle nasal breathing. And we kind of try to get them to do this multiple times a day. And I always tell them it's uh, close your mouth to stop your cough. And this one, we just want them to kind of think about gent- nasal breathing as often through the day as you can. So when you're not talking, when you're not in school and you need to talk, when you're not, when you're not doing anything, I want you at least once an hour to close your mouth and do five nasal breaths. And we teach them to be very focused on the air coming in the nostril. So feeling the gentle air at the front of the nostril. So the cool air going in the nostril and then out the nostril. And we are, this is where we kind of have to teach a little bit of breathing. We want the breath to be low and slow. So in the belly, they feel the air come in the nostril and then into the belly, bypassing the throat altogether. So we don't want them to feel anything in the throat. We want them to feel it come in the nostril. The belly comes out a little bit and then out the nostril. That's so relaxing. Oh my gosh. I'm sitting here doing it going. Right. (sighs) Very relaxing. And so that's kind of that. The reason we teach that is I want that to be their ultimate go-to forever. If they can breathe that way, they're probably going to eliminate even another um, episode of this happening again. This is, I consider nasal breathing a prevention technique. And I could get into a whole, I could give an hour lecture on why nasal breathing is important, but it retains moisture. You know, 80% of your moisture is retained if you breathe in and out through your nose. 
um, breathing out through your mouth, you lose a lot of your moisture. So um, it normalizes Which is how breathing. we get xerostomia. This Correct. is, yes. Okay. Sorry, squirrel. Yeah. Well, let's do that. Let's come back and do that in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen, I'm a, I'm, I have gone down the rabbit hole on nasal breathing, but nasal breathing is so, so, so important for all of our breath disorders. So I really try to get these kids to focus on nasal breathing because if they already have an irritable larynx, they're headed you know, towards potentially other problems later in life. If they're, you know, 11 or 12, eight, and they've got this issue, you know, they have a risk of developing GERD later in life, or they have a risk of developing LPR, laryngeal pharyngeal reflux later in life, or maybe some other kind of a cough, or maybe a breath disorder. They just have a larynx that is a little bit hyperreactive, and that may come back to haunt them. So learning nasal breathing now and trying to make that their their fallback, their way of breathing most of the time is going to only be positive for them. So that is my encouragement to them is to just close your mouth and breathe in and out through your mouth. And I tell them to set their, their phone, their watch, their, you know, whatever device they have and try to catch themselves doing it at least once an hour, five breaths. Fitbit. Sorry, they have the kids Fitbit and Goose loves his little, um, Goose creams me in Fitbit steps, by the way, and it's a competition, but he puts his little timer on there and that would be, which I didn't know that a kid's Fitbit had that, but just as a strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, we also have a couple of rescue techniques and the two that I teach them on the first session is sniff blow. So it's back to that nasal breathing on the inhale a little bit larger breath this time. So they're going to feel a little more air come in the nostril. And then they're going to exhale with a very tight pursed lip. And we're going to really like be focused. Not a whistle, just a very tight pursed. So not whistle, just tight pursed okay. lip. And again, this is where we have to spend some time on making sure that the breath is all belly, all diaphragm movement and not any chest movement. And kid, kids kids get this, like, I mean, I wish I could take my kiddos and teach, help them, have them teach my adults who can't find their diaphragm, can't find their bellies, can't find their kids are like little plastic. You know, I say, move it into your belly. And all of a sudden their bellies move. It's awesome. So I find no trouble having kids. Now, adolescents have more difficulty, but anybody kind of 12 and under, they can find their bellies, no trouble at all. Um, and then the third technique is pursed lip breathing. And so that is just pursing your lips as if you're inhaling and exhaling through a straw. And the cue for that one is only feel the breath in the front of your mouth and put your tongue just behind the airstream. So you feel the air go on your tongue on the way in and then you feel it blowing out. Right. <laughs> I'm sitting here doing this and I'm like, wow, this one needs a webinar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. You need to see it. Now, you don't, all of these techniques, less is more. We do not need big, large breaths. I always tell them we're, we're looking at tiny little breaths, about maybe a third to two thirds of your, your, your large, we don't want big breaths because if you take a big breath, you're going to fill up your lungs completely. And where are you going to get to the top of your throat where the problem is, where the tickle is? We want these to be very small breaths that stay in your belly and stay in your mouth or your nose, because that's where we want you to feel sensation. 
we're tricking the body. We want to feel sensation in the nose and the lips and in the belly. And we don't want to feel anything in the throat because that's the place where the problem is. We got to bypass the problem. And so if we keep your brain busy by thinking about feeling in the nose and feeling in the lip and feeling in the belly, it doesn't have time to feel anything in the throat. And that really, really works. Um, So that's what they do. And when they feel the tickle, three or four of those breaths and the tickle goes away. That's amazing. They can pair that with a sip of water. They can pair that with a swallow. Those are other two, two other things to kind of distract the throat. Um, and I liken that to if you have a mosquito bite and you don't want to scratch the mosquito bite, but you want to scratch around it to give, you know, to give some sensation, but not irritate the throat. So if it's really overpowering, you could do a swallow that'll move that tissue, or you can take a sip that'll move that tissue, but it won't bang the vocal folds together. So those are all the strategies we use. And and I always tell them, if we can do this for three or four days, that's enough of a break in the cycle to let those vocal cords begin to heal. And now all of a sudden we've stopped the cycle and we're going to stop the cough. So how long does does, uh, does treatment occur for? Like, is there like a, a like... Do you anticipate a three-month plan of care? Oh, gosh, no. It's short. It's very short. So typically I will see them. I'm going to see them for that one session, and I want to see them the next week, right, within a week, because my hope is that the cough is going to be dramatically better after after we've started these initial um, strategies. But usually within that next week, like definitely within seven days. If I can get them in earlier than seven days, that's even better. But with my schedule, it's usually a week. Um, Then if I can get them in, then we're going to fine tune everything. So they're going to come back to me and they're going to say, well, this is working and that's working, but I I don't really understand this, or I kind of don't know what you mean by this. So we're going to tighten everything up. So we'll fine tune, we'll fix whatever breathing strategies aren't really working, or we'll throw away the ones that aren't working and we'll try some other ones. We do have some other ones. We do alternate nostril breathing. We use a straw sometimes. So we have some other ones that we can sub in if the ones that we started with aren't working. And then, um, but we would expect, I would expect based on if it's truly habit cough, I would expect them to be at least 30% better after one week of treatment. Wow. It makes a huge difference immediately because all we have to do is just give them an alternate behavior. So then after that next visit, depending on how things are going, we might see them again, the third, you know, three, so three weeks in a row kind of thing, again, tighten up, make sure things are going well. By that third week, I would expect them to be 70% better. Um, and then I would follow up a month later. So I, my typical number of treatment sessions for habit cough is four. That's insane. Mm-hmm. It's, it's That's a miracle. Amazing. It's a miracle. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I bet on that fourth visit, the parents are just so relieved. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm a, t- I'm in a very emotional person. Like that's just, and I am comfortable in my own skin and admitting that. But when something amazingly beautiful happens, I cry. Oh, we have. There are a lot of <laughs> yeah. tears in my treatment room for many different reasons. But, but I also am a very. Um, I'm also I'm emotional, but I'm also I, I kind of I guess I believe that God has put me in this field. Um, for this purpose. I, you know, I've done a lot of different things, but I've been very, in the last several years, I very much felt like I'm fulfilling his work. And so 
um, not every not everybody gets to do that. So when you when you feel like everything you do is is um, a reflection of of um, that your purpose in life, it's uh, it's pretty awesome. Yes, that's tearful, joyful cries. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a good thing. It's a very good mm -hmm. thing. I have to process that and try not to cry right now. <laughs> okay. Okay. So everybody out there is listening going, oh my gosh, Michelle is such a sap. Pull it together, woman. Okay. <laughs> okay. So now what about when you have, and I don't even know how to say this word because it has too many syllables. What about the cases recalcitrant, that- it, Recalcitrant cases. Those ones- Yeah. I would never have read that correctly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and unfortunately we do have recalcitrant cases. Like what about the ones that don't, aren't fixed in four sessions? What do we do with those ones? Cause they come, right. It would be great if they were all perfect. Um, and so the ones that I think are recalcitrant are the ones who don't fit in all of the nice boxes, right? So they, they have some other stuff going on. So I have two cases that I wanted to just talk about, and we might only get to one of them, but let's talk about kind of a typical one that I saw recently. So this was a 12-year-old female that came to me this summer, actually. So she was diagnosed with asthma by her uh, pediatrician. And she was finally, she was, her, but, but her, the reason she was diagnosed with asthma was purely cough, wheezy cough. Um, her cough was productive. So there's one instance where she doesn't fit our habit cough or our behavioral cough. Um, it took her one year before she was finally referred by her pediatrician to the pediatric pulmonologist. So she was from what? a smaller town. Yeah. Smaller town. Um, her mother was at her wits end by the time she got to the pediatric pulmonologist and she got to my favorite pediatric pulmonologist who really thinks outside the box. So she really lucked out there. So she got to, to the person who I think got her the help as quickly as she could. So a year of coughing, they were just so frustrated, both of them. Um, he saw her and he said, he recognized, okay, this doesn't seem right. It was triggered by an upper respiratory infection. So that's a chip checks the box of behavioral cough also triggered by exercise and allergies that made it worse. So also checking the box of behavioral cough. However, she also coughed while she was asleep. X, Uncheck. right? Uncheck yeah. the box. Um, although her cough was less when she was asleep and the cough was productive X, right? These coughs are usually dry. But it was somewhat barky, but she was bringing up mucus. So he thought, okay, I don't know what to do with her. Let's see what Andrea thinks. So I saw her and I actually thought that she had an element of PVFM because when she exercised, she actually got very, very short of breath. The cough to me was less of an issue than the shortness of breath. So we did a little bit of work on more of the PVFM kind of breathing techniques, trying to help her with you know, controlling the shortness of breath, but really we're not very successful in anything because the cough was still the overwhelming symptom and her cough was productive. Mm -hmm. So she went back to, I said, try again, let's think of, try something else. So he did CT scans of her lungs. 
and thought she may have some infiltrates. And so he treated her for four months on an antibiotic, thinking that it was bronchitis, ongoing bronchitis. Well, that four months, four months on, on antibiotics that cleared up the productive nature of the cough. So that okay. was good. That was good. Came back. She, he sent her back to see me because the cough was still there, but the cough was dry now. And so we went, we went back through, we did all the techniques again, no improvement. So that after speaking with her and looking at the triggers, it was still exercise, but now she was being triggered by odors. She was being triggered by laughing and singing. She would cough. Any, anytime she spoke, she would start coughing. So because I treat cough in adults, she sounded to me like what we call sensory neuropathic cough, which is a cough that is the nerve is irritated to the point where we need to reset that nerve. We need to neuromodulate that nerve. And so I suggested we try amitriptyline with her, which is a medication we use in children sometimes for migraine, but also we use it in adults. So we, he went along with my recommendation. We hardly ever use it for pediatric cough, but he was willing to try it. 10 milligrams of amitriptyline. Immediately the cough stopped. What? So... That was a bit of a shot in the dark, but it fixed her. So, so this is an example of how knowledge outside of pediatrics helped her because she was not the typical case, but I think she had been coughing for so long. And I think her, her actual diagnosis was this bronchitis that had been not picked up. And once the bronchitis was gone, but the cough had gone on for so long that the nerve was irritated and she needed to get the nerve calmed down. So I guess it was maybe post-viral. It was certainly not behavioral because not one of the techniques helped. And so she looked like PVFM. She looked like behavioral cough. She looked like all those things, but it was an irritated nerve. It was still an irritable larynx. It was still hyperreactive, but it was not being caused by the same mechanism, if that makes sense. Okay. So then what about now, you, now you've got me on... Mm. What about my patients that have seizure disorders? Because I have a couple that have developed cough. Hang with me. I'm thinking of one in particular. The little girl had chronic coughed, but rare genetic condition, neurogenic based disorders, nonverbal in the sense of like functional verbal communication, however, has voice production capabilities, stat intubation due to um, uh, increase in seizure activity and then major cough afterwards. Mm. I would be very suspicious of neurogenic cough in that case because yes. anytime that there is disruption of the airway like that, especially when mm -hmm. it's um, when there is, sometimes there's irritation of the vocal cord. Sometimes there's disruption of the nerve of the vocal cord. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, sensory neuropathic cough is very much, um, uh, would be very much cons a consideration in that population for sure. Okay. That's... 10 milligrams of amitriptyline. And it, we do it for three months to reset the nerve and then the patient comes off of it and the cough is gone permanently. That's amazing. Actually, I would, I would love to send my mom to you. My mom um, has a really crazy cough right now and um, they think hang with this thought process. She's seen, I have been begging her to go to all the doctors for the last year and a half. They finally got her to an infectious disease specialist who diagnosed her with mold ingestion. Uh, there's yes. A, That's yes, common. There's a, 
Yeah. And I see a lot was, of people with mold, like with cough after mold. Yes. Yeah. It was, it's in the barn. She was mucking out the stalls from the horses. And there was a weird, one weird mold that's found in like two places in Virginia. And so she's got to do like an antifungal treatment that can cause hair loss. It's like horrible. Wow. <laughs> she, she may need the cough control strategies after that, because often once the system gets lit up, right, even when you take away the, even when you treat the, the, the histamine reaction, which is essentially what that is, you may still need, she may still need the behavioral control techniques to stop the cough. So something to think about. Yeah. yeah. Mold. See, this is what happens when you, you live on a farm. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, absolutely. So recalcitrant cases, recalcitrant cases just require sometimes just that bigger picture looking, you know, it does this one, that one didn't have habit cough or behavioral cough. And we had to look outside the big picture, but the doctor needed, you know, some knowledge from speech pathology to help to make that diagnosis. So I thought that was a, a good example of, you know, our, we can still contribute often. And even though we, that person didn't need the behavioral techniques, um, sometimes they do need the behavioral techniques once we figure out the, the whole cause and case of what's going on. Yeah. And this is yep. why we engage in interprofessional education so that we can properly engage in interprofessional practice. Bam. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm so grateful that I have wonderful colleagues uh, as physicians who are very willing to, to do that. And I, I, you know, you build that over time without question, but I have a great group of referring physicians who are just, just like, there was an example of someone who was willing to listen and think outside the box and, and listen, he was so grateful that that worked. I mean, as was the family. So it was great. That's amazing. That's awesome. Okay. Um, I have to be respectful of our time. You and yes. I could talk like all day long. This is yes. amazing. Uh, and I am, I am so grateful that your journey brought you to South Carolina. Because yes. you truly are doing, you are fulfilling your mission. And that's- 100%. Yes. Okay. So if folks want to learn more from you, how can they reach you? What can they do? Because this is, you have so much more to share. I can be reached um, through Greenville ENT. Um, the best way to reach me can either be through uh, my, e probably my email is the best way to reach me just because telephone wise, I work in several different offices. So my email is Andrea, A-N-D-R-E-A dot story, S-T-O-R-I-E at prismahealth.org. Everybody got the Andrea dot story at prismahealth.org. Prisma is um, like just how it's spelled. Yeah, so P-R-I-S-M-A health.org. Mm -hmm. And again, my last name is S-T-O-R-I-E. Um, everybody out there, thank you so much. Again, from all of us at First Bite, we love uh, when you give us reviews on the Apple podcast. If you have feedback, if you want to uh, take a peek at what's coming in the next couple of weeks, because you know we do this once a week, you can follow us at First Bite on Instagram or check out the Facebook page at First Bite on Facebook. And we have so many more exciting episodes coming out, but I want to come back and talk about this, the paradoxal vocal fold um, components in pediatrics, if we can. Absolutely. Would love that. Yes. Perfect. Okay. Hold on real tight. And let me switch us over to questions. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, 
professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the alliance? It's you. The alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Thank you.